All right. We're going to get uh, just about 15 minutes in the text tonight, um, and then we will have some festivities. But I just want to anchor us a little bit on where we were last week, and then maybe asking the question we didn't get to ask last week, uh, which is how does Matthew 24 clarify and help us to understand the book of Daniel, right? Last week we talked a lot about Matthew 24 and how to understand it within its own framework. And so this week we're just going to be taking a little bit of time looking at how does Matthew 24 clearly help us to understand what's going on, mainline themes in Daniel. And so uh, you remember last week I said the, the main idea or the main theme is letting the reader understand. You guys are upstairs, yeah. Um, so last week in Matthew 24, I said uh, Matthew is asking his reader to understand. He says, let the reader understand. And so this week we're going to ask ourselves the question, uh, does the reader understand or, or do we understand what's going on? So um, I just want to read uh, one uh, chunk of verses out of Matthew 24. And I'm going to be looking at verse 15 and 16. And then uh, also verses uh, 30, or sorry, verses uh, 32 and 34. Um, so Matthew 24, verse 15 says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And then looking to verse 32 of that chapter, From the fig tree, learn its lesson, that as soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near. He is at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we can ask uh, a question, which is, why did we spend a whole week elaborating and, and looking at Matthew 24, and how does that really relate to our study in Daniel? Well, you'll remember what launched us into Matthew 24 is two, ver two statements in the book of Daniel that are kind of this building framework and building momentum. Daniel has these visions that are kind of these anchoring points for him and his group of exiles. And one of those visions is in Daniel 7, which essentially shows us uh, the, the earth with beasts arising out of the earth to make war on the people of God. But at the end of these visions, there's this figure, one like a son of man, who destroys and puts to death and defeats these opposing armies, these opposing powers. And we ask the question, just pin it in your mind, okay, who is this one like a son of man? When does that victory take place? And then the other thing that launched us into Matthew 24 was in Daniel 9, at the end of the 70 weeks, we are told uh, in verse 27 that there will, be one on the, there will be one who on the wing of abominations will come and he will make desolate until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. And so there's these two things that are going on in Daniel that are confusing to say the least. And you'll remember Daniel himself is perplexed by his own visions, not really able to make much sense of it. But I think the, the easiest way to understand how these things tie together is to remember to understand the prayer that Daniel is, that, the, that motivates Daniel to ask, right? Daniel is studying about God's restoration of his people. He's, he's tying together a bunch of Old Testament promises towards the people of God, towards Israel. And when he looks at all these Old Testament promises, he, he essentially concludes to repent, to ask God for help, and to essentially say, Lord, would you please save your people for your own name's sake? And at that time, God sends Gabriel as the answer, and Gabriel's answer is this prophecy of the 70 weeks. And at the end of those 70 weeks, we said, okay, there's these events that happen, there's all these things, and at the end of the 70 weeks, there's this abomination of desolation, which Jesus picks up in Matthew 24, and he says, 
when you see the abomination of desolation, it'll happen in this generation. And so here's what we can conclude, let's say, in big picture summary form. Daniel's answer to all of his prayers are answered in the death and work of Jesus Christ. So when Daniel sees the vision in Daniel 7, the beasts which rage against the people of God, and then the beasts slain by the Son of Man, the question is, when does that happen? Well, Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven to Caiaphas. Daniel says he sees the Son of Man somewhere in the future doing this thing, and Jesus says it happens in him to Caiaphas. That is his crucifixion, his ascension to the right hand of the Father to receive the eternal kingdom. It happens by Jesus, by his work completed in his earthly ministry. And then the next answer to the visions in Daniel, Daniel is saying, well, when will the people, the covenant people of God, be restored to fellowship with God? How will they be kept? And the answer in Daniel 9 is it will all take place, and there's this event, which is kind of the telos or the end of all these things happening. And that event is this 70 weeks, and at the end of that, there's an abomination of desolation. And Jesus says, as a, as a prediction or as a prophecy, you, generation, will see the abomination of desolation. He says that to his contemporaries, his locals. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I'm picking up on the prophecy of Daniel, and the answer to the people of God being restored into fellowship with God is me and my work. This generation will see it happen. So what can we conclude? Jesus on the cross, by his work, his atonement, his sacrificial death on the part of his people, is cut off, and in that cutting off, he is restored to fellowship with the Father by his resurrection, and then he leads free a whole host of people who are restored back into right relationship with God through his own work. And so Jesus is the answer of the prayer of Daniel. Jesus is the uh, conclusion of the visions of Daniel of people making war against the people of God. But then we can step back one level and ask this final question. If all that is true, why is it that Christians still suffer? Why is it that the people of God are still under the thumb of oppressive forces? If the beasts are really slain, and Jesus really did it, why is it that the people of God still face persecution and opposition in this lifetime? It's a valid question. And the answer to that question can be seen kind of in the whole overarching motif in the book of Daniel, and really the whole New Testament is, is aimed at this question as well, which is how is it that we as Christians live in the already inaugurated kingdom of God, but not yet in the final consummate form of that kingdom? That's the question all New Testament disciples are asking, right? You'll remember the disciples, they miss the timing and they say to Jesus, will you restore the kingdom now to us here on this earth? And Jesus basically says, it's not for you to know the time when the kingdom will be restored. And we're still 2,000 years later asking that same question. It's a good question. In the book of Daniel, you'll remember that the stone which topples the statue is a solution to the problem of, well, the successive world empires, how are they toppled? They're toppled by a stone. But you remember, and this is in Daniel chapter 2, the stone which topples the statues is not a full-blown mountain when it topples the statues. The stone which topples the Nebuchadnezzar idol hits it at the feet, and it's a, it's a rock not cut by human hands. And then he says, look, I saw, and it grew into a mountain. It's a, it's a full-blown thing now. It's a full-blown structure. Jesus, much in the same way, comments on his kingdom. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of the seeds of the ground. And when it is planted, after some time, it brings forth massive growth, a massive tree, and now birds of the field can take shelter in it. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like a little bit of leaven. It goes into a little bit of flour, and it leavens the whole loaf of flour. It starts out small, and it grows to this unimaginable end. And so the people of God are torn always between that reality, that the kingdom of God is really here, and yet the kingdom of God is still advancing and still 
growing. This is the picture that Daniel paints. Now for Daniel, all of the happenings of when the kingdom of God deals its final blow on the enemy are still future. The abomination of desolation, the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, that hasn't happened yet. That's still future. But Jesus tells his generation it's in the past. And John, when he has his visions and revelations, sees all these events in the past. He says, I saw a lion. I heard about a lion from the tribe of Judah. He's going to conquer and open the seals. And I look and I see a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is the one to whom the angels pay homage and worship. So Jesus is the one who answers it, but he doesn't conquer by means of a kingdom that comes down cataclysmically on this earth and just deals death blows to all his enemies at one time. In 1 Corinthians, we are told that he must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet and the last enemy to be defeated is death. So as Christians, we live in this kingdom that's growing, that's evolving, that's progressing, but is not in its final consummate form, and it won't be until Christ comes and he is the one who will deal the final victory blow to the last enemy, death. But that doesn't mean that the kingdom of God isn't real and visible and hasn't already won yet. So what are we living in in this 2,000 years? You can think about it like this. God has already dealt the death blow to his enemies. He's already dealt the death blow to Satan. He did it on the cross. And the rest of the 2,000 years of church history, the rest of what we're living in now, the time between the inauguration and the fulfillment of that kingdom, that is really like Satan on the knockout blow and simply in his transition falling to the ground and ready to be counted out. He's not actually having any opportunity to win. There's not another opportunity for him to rebel and have any kind of victory. He lost. He lost finally on the cross. And so all of this intervening time is one long drawn out victory lap for the church. It's a victory lap for the kingdom for us to progress and to grow. And you might ask the question, well, why is that the case? Why doesn't God just come back now? And we would say, as, as Christians, we defer that to his eternal and infinite wisdom. Much like Daniel, who trusts that God is currently reigning and yet allows Babylon victory, yet allows the Medo-Persian Empire victory, yet does all those things according to his will. Well, we live much in the same way, where we say he is really powerful, he's really in charge, and yet he does things according to his own will, not according to our will. And so if we're asking the question, how does Matthew 24 help us to put together the themes of Daniel? Remember, Daniel is a, is a field guide for exiles. It's, it's written to the people of God who are under the thumb of the oppressors. And Matthew 24 confirms all of the promises that Daniel has spoken. And then Jesus then turns to his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel and essentially says, and we're going to kind of do this trusting thing once again, where you say, I really do have all authority, but you're going to have to live in this world as though the world doesn't honor my authority. You're going to have to go out in the world as persecuted, as slaughtered, as hunted down, as sheep who are amidst wolves all around. And yet, at no point in time am I ever not in control. And so then, uh, it's a question of faith. It's a question of belief. Do we walk that thing out, walk this Christian life out, with a faith that reflects that Jesus really is king right now, and that there's nothing that can assault us apart from his will? Or do we do the thing that we are often tempted to do by this world, which is to buy into the circumstances around us, and then uh, that motivates us to take our eyes off of King Jesus, off of the throne, and consequently off of the sovereign God who is the only anchor point. If you think about the book of Daniel, the answer to the monsters is, look to the Son of Man who has authority, who receives the eternal kingdom. The answer in the book of Revelation, when the saints are oppressed by a harsh oppression by the Roman government, the answer is, look to King Jesus, the land that was slain. This is how reality really is. It doesn't seem like it, it doesn't feel like it, but this is reality more true than the thing in which you're seeing in front of your own eyes. And so that is really how we tie together these themes. Now, Daniel is not done. He'll expand the themes within his own book, and over the next couple of weeks, we'll look at those. 
But I figured just to take one week to take Matthew 24, tie it back into why we went there in the first place, and, and, and lift our eyes back to that big picture, that Jesus is king, Matthew confirms it, Daniel predicts it, and we are living as Christians in that reality. So let's pray together and then let's uh, celebrate. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel which you have delivered to your saints of old, to your people. The gospel which you not only gave to us, but which you fulfilled in its entirety, which you brought to completion, which you work in the lives of your people, which you seal, uh, which you do not let go of. This gospel of the kingdom of God that you have uh, fully carried by your own power and is now carried forth by your spirit. Lord, we thank you for that. Were it apart from your work and your will and all these things, Lord, we would be lost as we were uh, before we found you and before you rescued us from the clutches of death. We thank you that you are a saving God. We thank you that you are a God who's infinitely wise and who does things by the counsel of your own will. Lord, there's so much that we don't understand, and Lord, there's so much that it is better that we don't understand. We pray that we would be in submission to you, even on the things that we have questions about, and we would take all of it to the counsel of your perfect will. Thank you, King Jesus, that you really are on the throne, and that there is nothing that can assault us, that you are really in charge, and that you are the all-powerful God to whom we worship. We thank, the, we thank you for all these things. Amen.